I want you to see something in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 14 and 15. Turn there in your Bible. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 14 and 15. Ecclesiastes is Latin for the word kohelet, which is a Hebrew word. That word translates as the preacher or the pundit or my preference has been the professor. And that is the word that the author, the great King Solomon, chooses to identify himself. He is kohelet. He is Ecclesiastes. He is the professor. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 14 and 15, years before Solomon was born, God came to his dad, King David, and said this. I will be to him, that is Solomon, a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, iniquity is another word for sin, And Solomon committed a ton of it. And then how did God say that he would respond? I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. That was written about Solomon before his life began. And... Now we're reading a book that was most likely written at the end of his life. And of course, God's words had come true. Those words he said to his dad, David, they came true. Solomon had committed iniquity. God had disciplined him. And yet God's steadfast love did not depart from him. And Solomon remembers this. He remembers this, his iniquity, his sin, God's discipline, God's love remaining. He remembers all that as he writes Ecclesiastes. He remembers that he sinned big time. He turned from God. He disobeyed God. He dishonored him. And in chapter 2, verse 10, whatever his eyes desired, he did not keep from them. He remembers that God disciplined him. God disciplined him by giving him everything that he wanted. God gave him everything that he wanted. But Solomon exhausted himself and came up completely empty, discovering his life to be, chapter 1, verse 8, full of weariness. And in 2, verse 17, he said, I hated my life. And that would have been the end of it. Except... God's steadfast love did not depart from him. And so God taught him the lesson that becomes the subject of his book. God is sovereign over all things. And he alone gives to his people enjoyment in the vanity of life. And that's what we've been learning. That's his lesson. That God is sovereign over all things and he alone gives to his people enjoyment in the vanity of life. Okay. So 
So here's where we're headed today. Christians struggle with that. I struggle with that. You struggle with that. This idea, this truth that God is sovereign over everything, over the good, over the bad, that he is in complete and total control, and that he alone, he's the only one in the universe who can and does give to his people and only to his people the ability to enjoy this life. Christians, Solomon knows this, struggle with that. We say things like, Okay, if that is true, then why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? That's one of the oldest questions that people have been asking. If that's true, if there is a God and if that God is good and if that God is in control, then why are there so many wicked people who are prospering and why are there so many righteous people who are suffering? We say that life seems unfair and life seems unjust. We might think this person hates you and you're giving him prosperity, but he hates you. And this person loves you and you're giving them adversity. So I struggle with this idea that you are in control, and good. And the closer to home that hits, the more difficult it is. Like if I'm the one suffering. If I'm the one going through adversity. Or if an enemy of mine is prospering. The closer this gets to home, the more difficult it is. Well, basically, this is Solomon's message today. Don't judge a book by its cover. Looks can be deceiving. That's the gist of what he's going to say. Don't judge a book by its cover. Looks can be deceiving. Prosperity is not always a good thing. And adversity is not always a bad thing. Prosperity is not necessarily a good thing. Adversity is not necessarily a bad thing. That's going to be his basic message today. Now here's the thing. So here we are as Christians struggling with with these truths. And God could just give us a a Romans 9.20 sort of answer. Which is, who are you to answer back to God? God could say that. We could say, I'm really struggling because I'm, I'm reading in your word that you're sovereign and in control and you alone give the gift to enjoy this life and you only give that to your people. But I see wicked people prospering and I see righteous people suffering. That feels unfair. That feels unjust. God has every right and total prerogative to say, well, deal with it. Just Deal with it. God has every right to do that. God has every right to say, I'm not going to walk up those steps and sit in the witness chair while you prosecute me and ask me a bunch of questions. 
That's what Romans 9.20 says. Who are you, Paul says, who are you to answer back to God? Or do you remember what God said when he came to, to Job? After Job had suffered and he was asking these same kinds of questions and he was sort of prosecuting God and saying, you don't seem this and you don't seem that. And God came to Job after Job just went off. It just went off and God came in a whirlwind and God basically said to Job, no more questions. Now I'm going to ask the questions and you answer me. I mean, God has every right to do that. He doesn't have to explain himself. But often he does. Often he helps his people. Solomon is trying to help God's people by giving us, I think, a very helpful perspective on prosperity and adversity. So that's what he'll do. He's going to teach us that prosperity is not always what it seems. Adversity is not always what it seems. And then he's going to give a very practical, helpful application. And before I preach this sermon, we should pray together. Will you please bow your heads with me? Father in heaven, we are coming to you this morning by your Holy Spirit and in the name of your son, Jesus, to ask for help. Help me to preach well, help all of us to hear well, not just with our ears, but with our minds, with our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. If you're using one of our church Bibles, which if you don't own a Bible, you're free to take it with you. You'll find today's text on page 357. This book of Ecclesiastes can be divided into four parts. If it is, then we are beginning part three today, which spans from chapter six, verse one, all the way through chapter eight, verse 15. And we'll divide today's text into two sections. The first section, six, one through 12, is about prosperity. And the second section 7, 1 through 13 is about adversity. So prosperity, then adversity. Let's begin with prosperity. Chapter 6, and we'll be in verses 1 through 12. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. So there it is. That's prosperity. That is serious prosperity. God has given this man wealth. God has given this man possessions. God has given this man honor. In fact, what does it say? This man lacks nothing of all that he desires. So this is about prosperity. And this also is going to become clear. This man doesn't love God. This is the wicked prospering. This is a man who's been given everything that his heart desires, and yet he does not love God. So here's the question. Why is God giving him Wealth and possessions and honor. Why would God do that? 
Do you do that for people that you think hate you? Do you give them gifts? This man doesn't love God, and you see this all the time. And yet God is giving him everything his heart desires, everything he could want. He's very successful. He has all the wealth. He has all the possessions. He has the reputation. He has honor. That's what bothers us. That doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem just. And the second half of this verse is what clears it up. Let me read the entire verse again. Verse 2. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires yet. God does not give him the power to enjoy them. Remember that. Yet God does not give him the power to enjoy all the stuff that God has given him. Instead, here's what happens. A stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things. How can this soul not be satisfied with life's good things? He's been given everything his heart wants. How can this guy not be satisfied? The wealth, the possessions, honor, a large family, a hundred children. That's a large family. A hundred kids. We, like we get weird looks when we go out in public. And we have six kids. And people look at us like something wrong has happened. And it was all accidental. And they, are they all yours? And weird questions like that. A hundred children? He's exaggerating, but still, his man has a large family. He's lived a long life, many years. And we think the formula is that equals enjoyment. That's prosperity. Prosperity equals enjoyment. Things are going well. He has everything that he wants. He has money in the bank. He has a big family. He lives a long life. He has honor. So he has reputation. People love him and respect him. His wife probably loves and respects him. His kids probably love and respect him. What's the point he's making? Prosperity is not always a good thing. It doesn't necessarily lead to joy. For example, this guy. He has everything and it's still not enough. This reminded me of a song written by Dustin Kensrue, the lead singer of Thrice. The song is called Not Enough. And let me read you the words. They're based on Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Though all the wealth of men was mine to squander, And towers of ivory rose beneath my feet. Were palaces of pleasure mine to wander. The sum of it would leave me incomplete. Though every soul would hold my name in honor. And truest love was always by my side. My praises sung by grateful sons and daughters. My soul would never still be satisfied. It's not enough. Though I could live for all to lift them higher or spend the centuries seeking light within. Though I indulged my every dark desire, exhausting every avenue of sin, 
I could right all wrongs or ravage everything beneath the sun, though all would bow to me till I could drink my fill of fear and love. It's not enough to make me whole. It's not enough. It never was. Prosperity is not always a good thing. It's not necessarily a blessing. Christian, consider who you envy. Consider who you envy. Consider what you covet. Be careful. Not only does this man not enjoy his life, he, like Solomon did once, he hates his life. He's got everything and he hates his life. Verse 3. And he also has no burial. I say, listen to this, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than this man. Even though he should live a thousand years, twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. So he could live this life full of prosperity 2,000 times, and still he would not be satisfied. It will never, ever, ever, ever be enough. Verse 7. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Verse 10. Whatever has come to be has already been named. And it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for a man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow, for who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Prosperity, but no joy. So here's the question. Why not? Why isn't this working? Why does he have this prosperity and yet still no joy? And the answer was given in verse 2. That phrase that we remembered. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them. This is, of course, really important. Having things and enjoying things are two different things. Having things and enjoying things are each a gift from God. You can be given the gift of stuff and not be given the gift to enjoy the stuff. 
You cannot deeply and freely enjoy the things of earth without both gifts. Prosperity is worthless if you don't have a relationship to and with God. One author says prosperity apart from God is like being given a can of peaches and no can opener. Or kids. I've seen my kids go through this. They get this amazing toy wrapped up. And they unwrap it, and it's this amazing toy. Usually in our home, it's a gun. And it's a gun that you that doesn't do anything unless it has batteries in it. And then on the bottom of the package, in very small letters, it says, batteries not included. If you're going to give a gift to a little kid and the batteries are not included, you've got to budget for the batteries. That's messed up. You ever had that happen? You open it, and unless you've got some stockpile of batteries, it's like a paperweight. There's not, it can't do the cool stuff. It can't make the sounds. It can't shoot the bullets. Batteries not included. So imagine all these good gifts that God does give. There's a label on every single gift, and it says this, enjoyment not included. It's not like you just have the stuff and you have the joy. We don't, as human beings, actually have just the natural ability to freely and truly and deeply enjoy the gifts that God gives. We need the power to enjoy these gifts. And Solomon talks about it over and over again. There was a day when he didn't have that ability because he had disconnected himself completely from God. And now, now he has the power to enjoy what God has given him. Or it's like this. My son Brady was recently congested. I think he still is, but for weeks. For weeks he had this, this congestion. And one of the side effects of the congestion was, was what? He couldn't taste any food. And Brady's like his dad. He loves to eat food. And he loves the taste of food. And he loves to savor food. And so I, I, I felt for him. And we had many, many great meals while he was suffering those side effects. And so he's eating the food, but what? He can't enjoy it. He's getting full, but he can't enjoy it. He doesn't have the taste buds to enjoy the tasty treat. This is what is happening to this man. He has been given all these gifts from God, and yet he does not have the power to enjoy it. George Herbert, he was a, a writer in the 17, 1600s, and he wrote a poem about this. So let me, let me read this poem to you. It's short. When God at first made man, having a glass of blessings standing by, let us, said he, pour on him all we can. Let the world's riches which dispersed lie contract into a span. So God says, I'm going to create mankind and I'm going to give them blessing after blessing after blessing. And if you don't see those blessings after blessings after blessings, you're just blind. Like if you drove here today and breathed in the air and looked up at the sky and felt the warmth of the sun and heard the birds. 
So God is just pouring out these gifts. He goes on. So strength first made a way, then beauty flowed, then wisdom, honor, pleasure. When almost all was out, God made a stay. So he says, here's God pouring out all these gifts, and then he stopped pouring. So what, what was in the bottom? According to this poem, what did God not pour out? God made a stay, perceiving that alone of all his treasure, rest in the bottom lay. Rest. God said, I'm not going to pour out the rest in all of these gifts. What is that? It's the power to enjoy. The power to rest in them. He goes on. Why didn't he pour it all out? Including this power to enjoy things. For, Herbert writes, if I should, said he, bestow this jewel also on my creature, he would adore my gifts instead of me. And rest in nature, not the God of nature, so both should losers be. Yet let him keep the rest, means everything else, but keep them with repining restlessness. Let him be rich and weary, that at least, if goodness lead him not, yet weariness may toss him to my breast. So according to George Herbert, and he's right, God has made us rich and weary. Rich and weary. And for so many, there's prosperity and there's not the ability to enjoy it. As I read that this week, I was thinking of Anthony Bourdain. I was thinking of Robin Williams. I was thinking of Kate Spade. I was thinking of these people who recently, right, had all the wealth, had all the possessions, had all the honor. They were, what, rich and weary. And no power to enjoy them. It wasn't enough. Each of them took their own life. Rich and weary. It's one thing. I was thinking about this. It's one thing to have little and not be satisfied. Because the hope is once you get more, you'll be satisfied. That's what you tell yourself. This isn't going the way I want and this hasn't come together and, and I don't quite have enough saved for that. So if you have a little, but there's, there's no rest and there's no satisfaction and joy, the hope is, but once I get more, then I'll be satisfied. But it must be quite another thing to have everything and still not be satisfied. That must be unbearable. Where do you go? Where do you turn? The fool, Solomon is saying, as he once was, cannot enjoy the things of earth. The fool cannot find enjoyment in the vanity of life. And often, not because he doesn't have anything to enjoy, but he lacks the power to enjoy them. So that's prosperity. That's chapter 6. That is prosperity. Don't judge a book by its cover. 
You get envious, you covet, you see people prospering. He says, careful, don't judge a book by its cover. Looks can be deceiving. It's not always a good thing. That's a very helpful perspective for us. And now he moves on to adversity. So chapter 7, let's keep reading. Verses 1 through 7. Listen to the adversity. A good man is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Look over those verses. Day of death. House of mourning. Sorrow. Rebuke. That is adversity. He's changed topics, clearly. And what does Solomon say about these afflictions? He says it three times. It is better. It is better. It is better. Something good for the day of death is better than the day of birth. So here you have a man who's going through adversity, but he loves God. All right, it's the old wicked prosper, righteous suffer. It's not always what it seems. So here's a man who loves God and he's suffering. He's going through adversity. Now we know this is true for the man or woman who loves God. The day of death is better than the day of birth. The day of death is better than the day of birth, clearly. Because the day that you die is the day that you go to be with Jesus. And you think, oh, but I won't have my car. Like, oh man, I won't have my 2003 Honda CRV anymore that keeps breaking. Or maybe more serious things. I'm, I'm not, I won't have my wife. Going to see my wife. Very thankful for that. Going to know her in heaven. Very thankful for that. But when I die, presuming she's still alive, I'm going to lose my wife. I'm going to lose my kids. Peyton, Brady, Jackson, Blaze. Avery, Reed. Those of you that are still around, I'm going to lose all of you. That's a lot to lose. Thinking about losing you and especially losing my family, that makes me sad. Until I think that on that day, I gain Jesus. Why not go to be with him? That's why Paul could say in Philippians 1.21 to live as Christ and to die as gain. Gain. He says, I'll take that deal every single time. So I trade everything in this life and I get Jesus in heaven forever. That's gain. That's, I don't need to think about it. I don't need to sleep on it. That's gain. So the day of death is, is better than the day of birth. Things are not what they seem here. Sorrow is better than laughter. And he gives reasons. It's better to hear rebuke than like the praises of fools. Don't judge a book by its cover. That's what he's saying. 
looks can be deceiving. Prosperity is not always a good thing. And now adversity is not always a bad thing. Adversity is not necessarily a bad thing. In this case, it's better than something. It's better than superficial happiness. Verse 6. This is superficial happiness. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. You ever put like thorny sticks or bushes in a fire? You know exactly what it's talking about. They burn really hot and really quick. And it's gone. So it's like loud laughter that dies out quickly. What's the point? Verse 8. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. That's true. Better is the end of a thing than the beginning. Like the work week. Right? Nobody says, thank God it's Monday. Nobody's like, I mean, maybe you are and you're a sick individual, but no one's pumped on Sunday night. Like I'm pumped right now to go back to work. I mean, you should enjoy your work. I know we've been talking about that, so don't email me about that. But the end of the week is better than the beginning of the week. Often the end of the day is better than the beginning of the day. Okay, teachers or students, what's better? The end of the school year or the beginning of the school year? Right, the end of a thing is better, Joshua, thank you, is better than the beginning of a thing. Hey, what about the trials that God takes you through? What, what about our family's gone through literal trials? And I can remember how, how difficult and painful and scary and was, was the beginning of a fight in a court for little Reed that we adopted. And the end of that, when the judge said, he's yours and no one can do anything about it, that was better than the beginning. Right at the end, sometimes, right, you, you see how it worked out. But you don't see that in the beginning or in the middle, by the way. You see how things work out. In the end, sometimes you can see the good that comes from it, how the conflict resolves. So what does he say in verse 8? The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. And then he goes on, here are the temptations that adversity brings. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. That's a temptation when things do not go well and I'm suffering and there's pain and adversity and affliction. I'm tempted to get angry. He says, don't be angry. Verse 10, don't do this. Say not, why were the former days better than these? Don't you hear people talk? Don't you talk like that? Why couldn't it be like the good old days? First of all, the, the good old days typically weren't as good as you think that they were. He says, say not, why were the former days better than these days? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. He says, you're not thinking straight. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun for the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. So verse 13, consider the work of God who he asks a question, who can make straight what he has made crooked? And what's the answer? 
No one. What does crooked mean in this context? Adversity. Adversity. He says, consider this. You can't change it. He says, consider this. You're not in control. You never were in control. You cannot make straight what he has made crooked. If you look down at verse 15, he gives the summary of the prosperity and the adversity. In my life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. So again, here's his message. Don't judge a book by its cover. In 6, 1 through 12, Solomon is saying prosperity is not always a good thing. And in 7, 1 through 12, Solomon is saying adversity is not always a bad thing. Looks can be deceiving. That's a helpful perspective. As we go through life and things go well for us or things don't go well for us, that's a helpful perspective that I can't just make these simple judgments and assume I'm getting it right. It's helpful when I see things happening around me or to people that I care about or to people that I love. It's a helpful perspective. Now, in conclusion, let's end with Solomon's application. So he takes all that. He takes that perspective. And then in verse 14, he turns to us personally. And he's giving us a practical application, specifically, how should we handle what he calls the day of prosperity and the day of adversity? How should he's just finished talking about those days. But now you and me on the day of prosperity, how should you respond? How should you handle it in light of what he said? Or on the day of adversity, how should you handle that? And here's what he says in verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. This is great. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So let's take those one at a time. What did he say first about prosperity? For those of you. For those of you who are here this morning and you fear God. Then. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. Be joyful. Enjoy it. We talked about this last week. That glorifies God. Don't deny those gifts that he's given you. Don't pretend those gifts he's given you don't exist. Don't wrap the gift back up and put it on a shelf to get dusty. Don't worry you're going to break the gift or lose the gift. Use the gift. Enjoy the gift. Love it. It pleases your heavenly father who gives you good things 
to be enjoyed. Now, again, we went over this last week. Don't detach it from the giver. Don't, don't disconnect it from the giver. Don't stop thanking God. Don't think that the gift is from you and not from... Don't, don't do any of those things. But be joyful. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. So it's been a good day. Maybe. It's been a good day. It's been a good week. You're in a good season. It's been filled with blessing. What should you do? Be joyful. Again, don't ignore it. Don't feel guilty about it. Be joyful. You offend God when you're not thankful and grateful for what he has given you. So he gives us this practical application. Be joyful. Now you might think, but didn't Solomon just make the point that prosperity is not always a good thing? He did. But Christian, he was talking about a man who does not love God. But ask yourself, are you a Christian this morning who has not only been given good gifts from God, but you've been given the power to enjoy them? Remember what he said in chapter 5, verse 19? It's the contrast to the man in chapter 6 who did not have the power to enjoy the gifts God had given him. What does it say? Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. So has it been a good day? Thank God. Are there blessings? Are there gifts that God has given you? Still breathing? Sitting next to family members? Sitting next to friends in an air-conditioned building? Hearing the gospel preached. Be thankful. Be joyful. In 6.8, the professor said, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. Stop thinking about the things you don't have. The wandering of the appetite. And think about what's right there in front of you. And wring every bit of joy out of it that you can. What if it's been a difficult day? What does he say? He says, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. That's a realistic application, isn't it? I'm sort of glad he didn't say, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, be joyful. That'd be tougher. Something has to happen before you're going to get to being joyful on a difficult day. So if my life is full of adversity, if my days are full of adversity, God, what should I do? Solomon, what should I do? What does he say? He says, stop and think. Stop and think. He says, okay, the, well, things are going really well, enjoying them. Very, uh, I know you humans... That's going to come, you can, you can do that. It's going to come naturally. When things are difficult, when things are hard, when the carpet has just been pulled out from underneath you, when the one thing that you knew you could not handle has happened, when you just lost the job, when your spouse just told you something you never thought you'd hear them say, 
when your kids are still in rebellion and still in rebellion and still in rebellion, when your friends have betrayed you and they've turned your back on you, when the doctor says the worst thing that the doctor could possibly say to you or to someone you love, what does Solomon say? He says, consider. He's saying, slow down. Stop. And think. This is where, friends, good doctrine becomes crucial. He's going to give you doctrine here. This is why good theology is important. Having good theology is not important so you can tell everybody, hey, I have really good theology. Just thought you should know. And by that I mean you don't. That's not, that's not what it's about. So you know your Bible good, you have verses memorized good, you, 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 you understand, you have good sound doctrine good, you understand what the Bible teaches good, you're growing in that good. But listen, theology is for something. It's for something. And it's for moments like this when you feel like you're going to break. The day of adversity. Here's the second half of the verse. In the day of adversity, consider. What should I stop and think about? God has made the one as well as the other. So that man may not find out anything that will be after him. I mean, you've got to have the Holy Spirit to understand that one. That, that is not, that's not going to work with a lot of people. I mean, this is what Solomon just said. On the day of adversity, you need to stop and remember that God's behind this. And there was a day if you would have told me that, I wouldn't have liked that at all. And it would have brought the goodness of God into question. I would have said, no way. But that's what he says. He says, on that day of adversity, you need to stop and remember that that good day you just had, that was from God. And this bad day also is from God. And he's made it this way so that, what's the second half of that? So that you have no clue what's going to happen tomorrow. And you have no clue what's going to happen next week. And you have no clue what's going to happen next year. He's saying, here's what I want you to consider. You are absolutely clueless. You have no idea what God is doing. You have no idea what the details of his plan are. All you know is that it's his plan and you're in the middle of it. Like it's his book and you're on page 6042 right now. But you don't have the book and you can't read it and you can't read the next chapter and, and read the, I mean, you can read the end and know eventually how it's all going to work out and you're in heaven and God's, but you don't know how it's going to work out tomorrow or next week or how you're going to make it or get through it. But what you do know is that this day of adversity is from God. Now that's repeating the same kind of thing he said in verse 13. I mean, he says it all over Ecclesiastes, but it's the same kind of thing. Consider the work of God who can make straight what he has made crooked. That's almost worse. God has made this crooked. You think you can straighten it out? You think you can fix this? He says you can't. 
The day of prosperity is from God, but so is the day of adversity. And I wonder if that's comforting to you yet. The day of prosperity is from God. And so is the day of adversity. In the day of prosperity, we're told to thank God. In the day of adversity, we remember our doctrine on the sovereignty of God. God made both days. That's exactly what Job had to tell his wife in chapter 2, verse 10. He said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. That's another one, David, that people could use against others in a really poor way this week. <laughs> don't, don't quote that this week. <laughs> I'm just I'm like imagining saying that to my wife. You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. And I'm imagining what would happen right after I said that. <laughs> and the, the pain I would feel in this, this region. <laughs> My wife has never hit me. <laughs> but, if she's, but if I said that, she'd have reason to. Or what did he say to his wife? Shall we receive good from God and not evil? And so we... I can remember taking that verse and oh, well, that's not exactly what he meant. That must not be the Hebrew and that must. But here it is again in, in Ecclesiastes. It's his whole point. He's telling us what to do on the day of adversity. And he's telling us to remember uh, on the day of prosperity, thank God, be joyful and enjoy it. On the day when there's not so many gifts and it's going really well and you can't see up from down, you need to slow down and think and consider that, hey, this day is from God too. God is sovereign. He brings prosperity and he brings adversity. And the wise man enjoys the prosperity and considers the adversity, remembering that the sovereign God alone gives enjoyment in the vanity of life. God has a plan and he's working all things together for your good. Whether your light is, life is crooked or straight, you need to see it in the light of God's greatness and his goodness. So which kind of days are you having right now? I know as I look out. I know as I look out. A lot of you I don't, but. I know for some of you, it's a day of prosperity. You say things are good. Things are going really well. I've been very blessed. Enjoy it. Enjoy it. Not waiting for the other shoe to drop. Just enjoy it. Enjoy it. That's what Solomon says. I know some of you are in the day of adversity or you're in the week of adversity or you're in the decade of adversity. It's hard. It's difficult. It's painful. It's hard to be joyful. It's hard to enjoy little things that you used to enjoy. and You feel bad about that. Or maybe your days are a mixture of both. It seems to be my days. Some prosperity, some adversity. Whatever it is, the helpful rhythm here from Solomon is to go back and forth from rejoicing and considering. Rejoicing and considering. The considering is what can get us back to rejoicing. 
Let me begin to close with an illustration. A story I read about this week about a man named Thomas Boston. Thomas Boston was a pastor in the 1600s. I feel like all my illustrations are from the 1600s. Just realized that. Uh, he was a pastor in the 1600s. He pastored a small church in Scotland. And he and his wife suffered a lot of adversity. And that's how it relates here. Tons and tons of adversity, tons of affliction. And one of the things that was most difficult and most painful that he actually wrote about is they, they had all together, they had 10 children. Imagine this. They had 10 children and they lost six of them in infancy. So they, they, they lost more than they kept. I read about one particular story. One of the children, a little boy, uh, Thomas and his wife had decided to name Ebenezer. Uh, Ebenezer is from 1 Samuel chapter 7, and Samuel did something. God had miraculously rescued uh, his people from defeat, and it says that uh, Solomon took a stone, and he, or, or, or Samuel took a stone, and he raised it up, and he called it a, an Ebenezer. And it was a symbol and a reminder. And Ebenezer is a reminder of the help and faithfulness of God. We've called Avery, our little girl, our Ebenezer. Because of everything that God did to bring her into our family. Today actually is her uh, adoption anniversary. But she's our little Ebenezer. She's a reminder of the faithfulness of God. And so... The Bostons had named this little boy Ebenezer, a reminder of the hope that they had and the faithfulness of God, and he died. Obviously a crushing blow. Well, later, Thomas tells a story that his wife became pregnant again, and he had a desire to name this little boy after the other little boy to name him Ebenezer. And he says he had a hesitation. Do you know what it was? He was afraid. He was afraid to name this baby Ebenezer because he thought, what? What if we lose this child? It'd be more than, more than I could bear. More than my wife could bear. Well, he decided against that logic. So he named the baby boy Ebenezer. He was born sickly. And he died. Now, most people, and I'm sure he did, would have a difficult time suffering that heavy loss and would be tempted to accuse God, be tempted to be uh, angry with God and assume wrongdoing or to abandon their faith or for Thomas Boston as a pastor to... Uh, at least drop out of ministry for a while. But he believed in the, the goodness and the grace of God. And a short time later, he preached a sermon, which has become a classic sermon. And that sermon was based on Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 13. And the sermon was called The Crook in the Lot. The Crookedness. The the bend. What was the recent crook in his lot? It was the loss of his second child. And he preached this classic sermon. 
And the point of the sermon was this, this crook in the lot, this, this adversity, this affliction, this pain. Rooted in Ecclesiastes 7, the truth that he had to consider to get him through that was that this crook in my lot, God put it there. He had to remind himself of that over and over again. God put it there. Why? For glory and good. For glory and good. For God's glory and for my good. For God's glory and this baby's good. For God's glory and my wife's good. Now, do you think you could sit down with Mr. Boston and he could tell you exactly how that all worked out and exactly how God was glorified and exactly how it was good with a big smile on his face? Is that real life? Do you think that's what he meant? Absolutely not. He had to stop and consider and trust in God. So you've got crooks in your lot. Life was going straight. You thought you knew where it was going, and now there's a bend. Now it's turned. And sometimes it turns in an ugly direction, in a difficult direction, in a painful direction. What does Solomon say? Slow down. Slow down and think. And consider the sovereignty of God. If your life is going well this morning, be joyful. Enjoy it. If life is difficult right now, consider the sovereignty of God. Trust him. Enjoy him. I'll close with this quote. This is from Walter Kaiser. Look with wonder, admire, and silently wait for the result of God's work. The contrasts of life are deliberately allowed by God so that men should ultimately develop a simple trust and dependence on God. For prosperity and the goods from God's hand, be thankful and rejoice. But in adversity and the crookedness of life, think. Reflect on the goodness of God and the comprehensiveness of his plan for men. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks for the word that you've given us today. I thank you for truth. We thank you for being the, the architect and the designer of our life. And we make our plans, Lord, but you tell us that you direct our steps. You've made our lives unpredictable. And you've made them unpredictable, we understand, so that we're forced to trust you. To place our faith in you. To accept our lot, whatever you bring our way, God. Whether it goes good, whether it goes bad. Whether it's a good day or a bad day. Day of joy, day of disappointment. God, help us to do what you're calling us to do in this book. To accept and to rejoice. And root us in the truth of your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.